0: Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God and the Son of God. Lord, we know that from time immemorial, You had a plan. And the plan was to redeem us, to forgive us, to reconcile us so that we could have a right relationship with You. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, You would open up our eyes and You would open up our minds that, Lord, we could hear what the Holy Spirit said through the prophet Isaiah so long ago. That You are a God who forgives sin. That You cleanse the sinner. That, Lord, we can experience freedom not just from the feelings of guilt, but from the reality of guilt, of having offended you. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied We know that the Bible is a book about miracles, but there are people who hate that about the Bible. As a matter of fact, during the time of the Revolutionary War and and after the United States became a nation, we had a president, and his name was Thomas Jefferson, and he couldn't bear the thought of miracles, and so he took his Bible and he cut out and carefully cut out any mention of miracles in his Bible. But we know that the the Bible is a miraculous book. God miraculously shows up to Abraham. God miraculously reveals himself to Moses. God miraculously delivers the children of Israel. God miraculously preserves the life of Jonah in the belly of a sea creature. Jesus really does walk on water. But that's not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle, the greatest miracle that's mentioned in the Bible is to ask and answer the question, how does God exonerate the guilty? How does God take someone who is unrighteous, who is a sinner, who is a transgressor, who has clearly done that which is wrong and make them right? How does he do there's something inside of us. There's something inside of our hearts that well, well up inside of us. We, we fundamentally care about justice. It wasn't too long ago that many of you watched the OJ trial. And you saw all of the things that went on in the trial. And you ask yourself this question, are they going to let this guy go simply because he's famous? And guess what they did? They let him go, and something wells up inside of you. We don't want the guilty to go free. Except if we're the guilty. Except if we're the transgressor. Except if we're the ones who have done something fundamentally wrong. And in this passage, Isaiah answers the question by looking at the success and the suffering and the significance of the Messiah. He is going to answer perhaps the most amazing question that can be asked. And that is, how can God love me? And how can God accept me? And how can God forgive me? This is the fourth and final servant song in the book of Isaiah. The servant song began in chapter 52. Remember in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Um, He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. That was the first uh, stanza of the song. We've already looked at that. Just as many were astonished at you, people were going to be remarkably astonished at the servant and the Messiah. So his visage was marred more than any man. People would ask the question, Um, is the Messiah going to be a human being? And Isaiah says he's going to be so brutally beaten that he's going to be unrecognizable. When you really do see the Messiah, you're going to ask not if Jesus is the Messiah, but how could someone so badly beaten be the Messiah? Remember, this is the stumbling block that is going to take place. And so we see the suffering servant rejected. If we go now to chapter 53, he he writes, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The idea being, this is the news. The suffering Messiah has come. Remember from chapter 52, we, we are being liberated. We're going to be set free. But who's believed the report? Here's the idea. This is too good to be true. God will accept the guilty. God will justify that which shouldn't be justified, which can't be. How do you make the guilty guiltless? How do you make the unrighteous righteous? This is too good to be true. Will Israel believe God's report? God knew that the vast majority of people who came in contact with Jesus wouldn't accept him, but that they would reject him. And remember, that's what we've learned already this past Sunday as we've been going through John's Gospel, chapter 5, as we discover something that as Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah, as he presents his messianic credentials, the words that he speaks, the affirmation of the Father, pr- predictive prophecy, the miracles themselves, but no matter how much he puts in front of people to declare the fact that He really is who He says He is, they don't believe Him. Who's going to believe Him? God knew that people would reject Him. And by the way, here in in, in the, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we get this picture of the suffering Messiah. It's as if, prophetically, you get to have a seat right next to the cross as you begin to see the life and the ministry of the suffering servant unfold. And the rejection would take three primary forms. Number one, they would reject his words or his report. Who has believed our report? Remember what we've already learned in John chapter 5. For those of you who have been here on Sunday, Jesus said, you don't believe my words. He said, you don't believe Moses because if you'd believed Moses, you would believe my words. They've rejected God's report. They've rejected the testimony of the Father. They've rejected the calling of the Spirit. They've rejected the words of Jesus. And and look at number two, the religious leaders would reject His works. When it says, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord in the book of Isaiah becomes a type and a picture of the way that God works among human beings throughout the Old Testament when God would declare His great power. He would talk about the arm of the Lord, the idea being of God's ability to work. And number three, the religious leaders would reject His person. Look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Here's the idea. Jesus doesn't look like Brad Pitt. He doesn't have this extraordinary good looks. And again, if you go back in time, you know. If you picture Jesus looking sort of like, I'm trying to think of somebody, tall, dark, and handsome, you would be incorrect. One of the things about Jesus is people were overwhelmed by just how ordinary he was. You see, we grow up and we live in circumstances when we romanticize Jesus, we picture Him as a baby with a little halo around His head. We picture Him walking with His disciples, glowing like He's experienced radiation fallout. But exactly the opposite is true. There is nothing about Him that you would be physically attracted to Him. The the idea of being... He has some sort of overwhelming charisma. That is just simply not true. Jesus is born in the most humble of circumstances. His mother is a peasant woman. Her husband was a carpenter, perhaps a stonemason. He's born in a manger or a stable. He grows up in a town that can't, for all intents and purposes, be called a town. Nazareth was a way station in the middle of nowhere. Nazareth was despised. Remember in John chapter one, verse forty-three, when um, one of the disciples, Nathaniel, is asked that, that we found Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what he said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The prophet writes, "He shall grow up before him as a tender plant." The idea being a small shrub. The word literally means a little. Bush, by the time Jesus is born in Bethlehem and being raised in Nazareth, even though he comes from the royal lineage of David, the offspring of David and the family of David are living in poverty, abject poverty. As a matter of fact, the words literally mean, instead of a tender plant, it literally means a little bush. He's not a George W. Bush whose father is a president. He doesn't grow up and and go to Princeton or Harvard. The context seems to indicate humility. And so Jesus grows up in a time of spiritual deadness and spiritual decline. And the suffering servant would grow up just like all children grow up. And the religious leaders were offended with the idea that that God could become a man and grow up among them. They they were offended with the idea that the Messiah would be humble, despised, rejected. That's what it says in verse 3. He is despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with, with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. The idea being he is rejected. You know what despised means? It means hated. And rejected means not well thought of it. It means drawn outside the circle. And when it says a man of sorrow is acquainted with grief and we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he would be the kind of person that you would be ashamed to be seen with. Even though you don't really believe that about yourself. I know what you believe about yourself. You believe that if you could go back in time and that if you could see Him and touch Him and be with Him and walk with Him and follow Him, that that's exactly what you would do. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest something to you. You're probably wrong. You would have looked at Him and you would say, What? This is the Messiah? We hid, as it were, our faces from Him turning away. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The prophet Isaiah has already said that the Messiah's physical appearance, again, is not, not extraordinary. The Messiah doesn't have any special thing that would differentiate him from any other human being. You'll remember that when the, he meets in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's betrayed by Judas, even Judas says to the religious leaders and the soldiers who are with him, This is how you'll know that it's Jesus. I will kiss him. And remember, he approaches Jesus and Jesus says to him, Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Yet for those who know him and love him, he's the fairest of 10,000. He's the rose of Sharon. Why? Because... His beauty isn't in the physical appearance, but in the extraordinary mission that he will accomplish. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus reminds his disciples and the the religious leaders would come and that they'll arrest him, they'll beat him, they'll imprison him, and, and, and that they would forsake them. He basically says, you're all going to deny me. You're all going to run away. And a careful reading of Matthew's Gospel, you discover that's exactly what happens. They all run away. There's just special attention brought to Peter. Because when Jesus says, you're all going to reject me, you're all going to run away, Peter makes a big deal out of it. He goes, even if if they kill me, I'm going to stick it out with you. And Jesus says, before the evening's over, you're going to deny me not once and not twice, but you're going to deny me three times. Jesus was forsaken by his own disciples, and he was forsaken by the nation, and in a very real sense, he was forsaken by the world. And this was a stumbling block jesus preoccupied himself with doing good and teaching in the temple and healing others and once again we're reminded of just how wicked we are the one and only time that a perfect person comes to the planet earth and lives the perfect life we kill him and the suffering servant redeemed is talked about in verses 4 through 6. Look what it says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Here's the question. Why would an innocent man die for the guilty? The verses give us the answer. Here's what the text is saying. Jesus was taking the place of sinners. Jesus was bearing the judgment of the guilty. In First Peter chapter two verse 24 it says, "Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to, to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. He quotes Isaiah 53 in order to substantiate the claim. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, For He, speaking of the Father, made Him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Look at Isaiah's precise prophecy. The suffering servant pays the price. What price? He is wounded. He is pierced. This is a reference to the kind of death that the Messiah, that the suffering servant would experience. By the way, this passage was written 700 years before the birth and the life of Jesus. This passage was written before the practice of crucifixion even existed as a matter of fact in John chapter 19 verse 37 it says and again another scripture says they shall look on whom they pierce. And the Scripture they're referencing is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on Me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for Him as one mourns for his only Son and grieve for Him as one grieves for a firstborn. The suffering servant is bruised, which literally means crushed as under... An impossible burden. And so in Isaiah chapter 53, when it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by men, and afflicted. In verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised that's an important word for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him the suffering servant is pictured as a person who's bruised and by the way bruised literally is a word which means crushed under an impossible burden It means a person who is literally weighted down and smashed. The idea being the suffering servant is chastised or punished as though he had broken the law. In this case, it is the scourging and the stripes. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. The idea is that he's experiencing the crushing weight of the circumstances of sin the chastisement of our peace was upon him the guilty for the innocent by the way when i was i had the doctors on my radio program and i was trying to do two things at once i was trying to prepare for this study and prepare for the doctors so i started looking up stuff and i discovered that doctors say there are five types of wounds one wound is called the contusion which Jesus received when they punched him in the face. That's talked about in verses 13, 14, and 15 of chapter 52. They beat him and they pummeled him. They pulled out his hair and his beard. And so the, the second is called laceration, which Jesus received when he was whipped with what was known as the flagellum. This is um, a, a, a piece of wood that's wrapped with leather. And to, those le- to that piece of wood, are nine strips of braided leather. And on the nine strips of braided leather, at the end of the leather, they would put pieces of glass. They would put pieces of of metal. Or they would put pieces of bone. And then they would, when they were whipping Jesus during that time, it would literally create welts which would fill with blood. And then then it would open up His flesh and literally tear the skin from His back and His shoulders. And then the, second, the third kind of wound is called penetration. And it, it, it's the kind of wound that's received when a crown of thorns is pressed upon a beaten brow. But, but the, the, the crown of thorns isn't simply placed upon his head. It's pressed and then indented into his head so that the laceration and the scalp is broken. And then the, the next type of wound is called perforation. It's received from the spikes, the nails in his hand and his feet. And when the spikes are placed in his nail, in his hands and his feet, it would have, it would have affected the, the nerve. And the nerve would have sent his body into uncontrollable spasms. And then finally, the last kind of wound that doctors talk about is an incision, which he receives. On the cross, when a Roman soldier takes a spear and he puts it right underneath his ribcage, piercing the pericardial sac, breaking his heart open. And here's what Isaiah says: Why did he receive these wounds? Why does he receive? every kind of wound that is imaginable to a human being. And according to Isaiah, it's so that we could be healed. Now think carefully for just a moment. The suffering Messiah receives the wounds. He bears the guilt of All of your sin and all of your transgression so that you don't have to. In the book of Leviticus, there's page after page of sacrifice. In my in my own um, quiet time this morning, I was reading chapter after chapter of the book of Leviticus. And according to the law of Moses, there were burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and trespass offerings. And by the way, the trespass offering was for unintentional sin against holy things, or or if you did something against some someone. In other words, all of the of the of the sacrifices, the burnt sacrifice, the 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 the, um, the all of the sacrifices that I've just mentioned, burnt grain, peace, trespass offerings—they were all outlined in the book of Le- Leviticus—not for intentional wrongdoing, but for unintentional wrongdoing. There's there's two kinds of sins that each and every one of us have committed. Things that we did intentionally and things that we did unintentionally. Have you ever hurt someone and you had no idea what you were doing? I suspect each and every one of you have. I know I have. And if that isn't bad enough, have you ever intentionally said something that you knew would cut and wound? Have you ever said something or done something and you knew that the net result of what you were doing was going to hurt somebody. And then you felt guilty about it. And you began to bear the burden of your guilt. Here's what the suffering servant does. He doesn't simply bear your guilt feeling he bears your very real guilt. Not just the fact that you feel bad about what you've done, but the very reality of the things that you've done. And look what the writer says in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we see something about the suffering servant. He isn't simply a suffering servant for the children of Israel who find themselves in bondage in Babylon. But he becomes the suffering servant who will be the provision of sin for everyone, everywhere. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The New Testament affirms that. Jesus died for all. The most famous verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And then we see the suffering servant's resignation in verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. He is oppressed, he is afflicted, but he doesn't open his mouth, he doesn't complain, he doesn't protest. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Here's the idea. He isn't a victorious Messiah who rides in in order to save the day. He is brutally beaten. He is bruised and afflicted. He is in prison and he's taken from prison to the place of judgment. Do you realize that there are so many prophecies concerning Jesus that we hardly know where to begin? Concerning his birth. Concerning his life and ministry, he would be called out of Egypt, according to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. He would be rejected by his brethren. Psalm 69 8 I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Rulers take counsel against him. Psalm 2 Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers together against the Lord, against his anointed one. He is rejected as the capstone. He is to enter the temple. He'll call to those who aren't his people. The king will come to Jerusalem on a donkey. He'll be a stumbling block to the Jews. Upon his coming, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. He will fulfill promises to Jews and Gentiles. He ushers in a new and an everlasting covenant. Like Moses, he speaks God's word. He's hated without reason. He comes to do the will of God. He's anointed by God. The list goes on and on and on. And look what it says. For he's cut off from the land of the living. Do you know what that means? He'll be killed. Now think carefully. Here's what the prophet is prophesying. He will bear your guilt. He will bear your sin. He will bear your punishment. He will take that which is unbearable. Now, imagine someone said to you, I'm going to bear your sin. I'm going to bear your burden. I'm going to bear your your guilt. Let's put it in in terms that maybe we could even understand. Imagine a person says, I'm going to take your debt. Well, you don't understand. I owe a million dollars. I know. I am going to pay your debt, and I will work every day, day after day, for the rest of my life. Well, don't you realize... That's going to kill you? Yeah. And that's exactly what Jesus does. In other words, the net result of bearing the consequences of your wickedness and your sin is going to result in his death. And look what it says, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. A transgression, remember, is a sin that is committed, either knowing or unknowing. And then the prophet says, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In other words, Jesus never raised his hand violently. He never lied about anything. In the Hebrew text it could be translated, and they appointed his grace with the wicked. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. But what does that mean? Well, remember the plan for Jesus' body was to bury it at best in a potter's field or to throw it in a garbage heap. But in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, we see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus coming forward to claim the body from the cross. They will rescue Jesus' body from the cross. The Lord promised his son a grave and a garden, and it is fulfilled. Humanity's journey began in a garden in Genesis, and it ends with a garden in Jerusalem. The suffering servant had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. We know that men, human beings, are by nature Unjust, but God is just. So how is it possible that he's going to be treated so unfairly and so unjustly? Because he he will be the substitute. And look what it says in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make a soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What does this mean? Now think about it. Think about the people who are reading it for the very first time. What is this saying? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Sometimes people read those words as if it means that God took some sort of sadistic delight in punishing his son. But that's not the case at all the text probably means it was God's plan all along it was God's plan and God's plan was a complete success so when it says yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him it was always God's plan and he would fulfill his plan and his plan would succeed it was his plan it was his plan all along that the guilt and the pain and the punishment and the consequences of your sin would be laid on the Messiah the Father doesn't rejoice in the suffering and the death of His Son. What He rejoices in, that He is pleased that the work of salvation is complete and that the sacrifice is accepted and that the atonement is made and that the Holy God could in mercy and in love and in grace
1: give you what you need most. Forgiveness.
0: Grace. Acceptance. And what was Jesus' reward? Was His reward a thank you from the Father? Hey, thanks, Son, for being so obedient. Was it was it the knowledge that He accomplished His Father's will? Maybe. But there's something else. Remember, the suffering servant would be raised... From the dead. Look what it says. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. How is that possible? Remember, Jesus is not married, he doesn't have children. How do you see offspring if you're never married and you never have kids and then you're killed? Look what the text says. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How do you prolong days? Well, I think that what the text is basically intimating is that he's going to bring him back to life. That's exactly what God is going to have to do. He's going to have to bring the suffering servant back to life. And then in verse 11 it says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so, again, each verse is loaded. He shall see the labor of his soul. What does that mean? He's going to see the fruit of the consequences of the sacrifice that he made. Do you know what that means? All of the people that he saved. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That means he is dying, but he's also being risen from the dead in the absolute understanding and knowledge that he will save you. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Note what it doesn't say. Everyone. He'll justify many. You know who he'll justify? Those that will come to him. Those who will believe in Him. Those who will receive Him. And look, it says why in verse 11. For He shall bear their iniquities. He becomes the burden bearer. The sin bearer. Verse 11 is a snapshot. Do you know what it really is? It's a prophetic family picture of the spiritual family of God in Christ. These are the people that the Lord Jesus Christ has justified and declared righteous by His grace and His sacrifice. And so in verse 12 it says, "...therefore..." I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. The idea being, again, therefore, in light of that, I will divide him a portion with the great. He is bruised and battered and beaten and murdered and killed. There doesn't seem to be much chance of him being a great person. But he's going to be great because he's going to be raised from the dead and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Do you know what he's talking about? Ephesians chapter 4. Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament and you've gone through Ephesians, remember what it says in verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this, if he ascended, what does it mean? But also that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who ascended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Here's the idea. Jesus has as his treasure those that he is redeemed on the earth Jesus was ridiculed he was rejected he was remanded he's reduced to a spectacle he is murdered he is numbered with the transgressors he's treated as if he's a common criminal he is crucified between two Common criminals, two thieves, and even as he's being killed between the two thieves, he makes intercession for the transgressors. He prays for them even as he dies next to them. Now listen carefully to this. You'll note that when Jesus is dying on the cross, He doesn't speak cruelly. He doesn't revile those. He doesn't curse those who took His life, but rather He prays for them, forgives them, and then prays for the men who are immediately dying next to Him. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Who is He who condemns? Is it Christ who died? and therefore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Look what it says at the end of verse 12. And he bore the sin of many. And he made intercession for the transgressors. He prayed for the people who died next to him. And in Romans 8.34 it says, He is seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to pray for you. That's what it says in Romans 8.34. You ever wonder what Jesus is doing in heaven? He's seated at the right hand of the Father where He constantly prays for you. And as He's praying for you, you know what He's praying? Father, they're going to make it. Father, I've died for their sins. Father, I've borne their iniquity. I've carried their guilt not just their feelings of guilt, but their real guilt. Some people have wondered, is Isaiah 53 really about Jesus? Is it about the nation Israel? It's written 700 years before Jesus was ever born. Could it possibly apply to anyone else? answer is no. As a matter of fact, Philip, in Acts chapter 8 when after a great revival is taking place an Ethiopian eunuch comes to Jerusalem he's the treasurer of a a nation and he comes and he gets a scroll of Isaiah and as he leaves Jerusalem and he's headed back home in Acts chapter 8 if you have just a moment, turn there Philip is pursuing this guy because the Lord calls him to pursue him. And beginning in verse 26, an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip and says, Go, I want you to go south to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza where it's a desert. He arose and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians. is who is in charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. He's returning. He's on the flip-flop. He's headed back. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran next to him. Now think about this. Philip is running, and as he's running next to the chariot, he can hear, because in the ancient days, people wouldn't just read silently to themselves. They would read out loud. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip says over to him,
1: Excuse me? Do you understand what you're reading?
0: And the Ethiopian says in verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip gets up in the chariot. And the place in the scripture where he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself? Or of some other man? Is this about Isaiah? Is this about someone else? Is this about the nation? And look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Jesus. It's about Jesus. He is the suffering servant. And all of the various specific scriptures relate specifically to him. Thomas Kramer, in in the common book of prayer, when he was going over the communion service during the time of just shortly after the Reformation, in, in the common book of prayer, it says this, and I quote, Almighty God, this is the prayer that they would pray before communion. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Unquote. The feelings of guilt. The feelings of guilt. The pressure of guilt. The pressure of of having sinned, the pressure of not being right with God because of our sin is horrible and terrible. And remember what the suffering servant is doing. He is taking our iniquity. As a matter of fact, in Romans 3.19 it says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What he is basically saying is, the reason why everyone feels guilty is because they are guilty. Our guilt is intolerable. It's unbearable. If we have to answer for what we've done. The writer of the Old Testament and the New Testament says, If any of us have to stand before God with the burden of our guilt and our own express wickedness, we'll be crushed. So, you know what we normally do with our guilt? We blame others. It's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my children's fault. It's the pastor's fault. It's the political people's fault. It's everybody's fault other than myself. And you know what's interesting? What makes unbearable guilt go away? To lie about it? To live a lie? To live in deception? what will make the guilt go away? If we watch enough, enough TV or movies, if we work or if we romance or if we if we achieve something, will that make the guilt go away? Ray Ortland writes, and I quote, here's the wisdom of God. The undeserved sufferings of Jesus Christ outperforming the best of this world's sweet, oblivious antidotes and the mission of the church is not to offer the world a Christianized version of their own false salvation, but to communicate good news that they've never seen or heard before. If people do not sense that the gospel is saying something unheard of and the usual remedies for human misery Are we speaking clearly enough? Here's what the gospel is saying, that Jesus is willing to take the blame for you. He gladly steps forward in order to take the blame. I was watching uh, Bob Dylan last night. Uh, It was the Newport Film Festival. Um, uh, It was the uh, folk festival from 1963 and 64 and 65. And one of the people um, who was singing with Bob Dylan was Joan Baez. And she used to sing, um, she used to sing a, um, a, an old spiritual song. Some of you remember "Oh Happy Day." Do you remember "Oh Happy Day"? When He walked, when Jesus walked and took my sins away. Do you know what she said at the end of the song? as the song was trailing off, Oh, Happy Day, when Jesus walked and He took my sins away. And then you can hear as she trails off in the song, she says, if it were, if it were just that simple, if it were only that simple. But it is that simple. It is that simple. Ray Ortland writes again, quote, every one of us needs a scapegoat. In the gospel, Jesus says to us, I'm willing to be the scapegoat of the world at my cross. It's my professional business to be crushed under the unbearable guilt of others. It's my role to bear away other people's guilt. That's what I do. And listen carefully. Because I love guilty people. If you'll trust me, here's the deal. My only guilt will be yours. And your only righteousness will be mine. Here's the idea. The only thing that Jesus ever was blamed for before the Father was your sin. And your sin. And your sin. He will fully, finally, collectively, he will take every sin, every transgression, every wickedness, every foul and disgusting thing, every guilty thing that you've ever done every guilty thing that is pressuring you and bowing you everything that is making you sick everything that makes you weep everything that causes your stomach to turn everything that causes your hands to sweat he will take your guilt he will take all of your guilt and as the lamb just like the lamb in the Old Testament where the priest would come before the lamb and he would place his hands on
1: On the head
0: of the sacrifice, transferring the sin and the guilt to the one who would be slain. The person, the suffering servant, the Messiah, bowing under the pressure of the collective circumstances of your sin. He's bowed down and he's inviting you to place your hands on his head. So you don't have to be guilty anymore. You don't have to be guilty. One more day. One more hour. One more minute. The suffering servant bowed under the tremendous crushing burden of your sin and guilt. Offers to take it.
1: All you have to do is just give it to him. place your hands on
0: his head where the crown of thorns lie, where his face has been beaten beyond recognition, where the crushing weight of wickedness and sin is fully and finally being born and you get to be free how is that possible it's a miracle it's a miracle it's the greatest miracle ever Jesus Christ The Lamb of God, the suffering servant, being crushed for you, bruised for you, stricken for you, killed for you, raised from the dead, so that he could see you and be with you forever. We're going to have communion now. And I'm going to have uh, Isaac come up. And we're going to have the guys come forward. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And what I want you to do is just hold the elements of communion until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Now I want you to think for just a moment. Here's the deal that Jesus offers I'll take all of your sin And you get to take all of my righteousness Deal Or no deal How could you pass something like that up? Or will you continue to cope with your own guilt? you try to lie about your guilt, deny your guilt, hide your guilt, smother your guilt, medicate
1: your guilt, just give it to Him. He'll receive it. Heavenly
0: Father, I pray right now for that person who's bearing the weight of their own guilt, not just the feelings of guilt, but perhaps real guilt. Lord, I pray right now that they would take the deal that Lord that they would allow Jesus to be the sacrifice the sin bearer so that we could experience peace forgiveness joy freedom reconciliation Lord, I pray that You would open up the heart of that person. Lord, I pray for the person who is stooped and bent and burdened by guilt. Lord, I pray that as they come forward for communion, that as they take this tiny wafer and as they take this symbol of Your death, that Lord, in taking it, they would also give to You all of their pain, all of their guilt, all of their sin, all of their sorrow. Receive all of your forgiveness and all of your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: It's going to crush you inside and out break you my son but Jesus the choice is yours because I know the sin is theirs to pay and the debt is theirs to hold we can make a way close the gap if sin is made your blood could write your songs. We could sing our song to call them. And find your way back to me. Yeah, I know your faults, but I, I was pierced so you'd be healed. So turn your heart back. Yeah, I pay the cross cause I I couldn't change the way I feel Can this cup be taken that I see take the sins upon myself and turn your back Tea, but I love them too If my death can build a bridge for them I'll bring them back to you and we'll sing it Find your way back to me I know your faults but I I was pierced so you'd be here Turn your heart back to me I'll pay the cost cause I Couldn't change the way I feel Because, cause I, I couldn't change the way I feel.
0: says that on the night that he was betrayed he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take this and eat it all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And then the Bible says that again he gave thanks and praise and he took the cup and he said, take this cup and drink it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Your sins. Each of your sins. All of your sins. When Jesus spoke those words, none of you were. You weren't even a gleam in your great, 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 great grandmother's eye. You were so far off in a distant future, but Jesus had each and every one of you in mind. And so not one more day. Not one more hour. Not one more minute. You do not have to bear the feelings of guilt anymore. And you don't have to bear the guilt anymore. Because Jesus died for you. He gladly,
1: willingly,
0: voluntarily, lovingly, specifically, Included that in the deal. You can walk in freedom and in grace. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. You don't have to live in a quiet terror, wondering if you are accepted in the beloved. There's an interesting film that was made of the life of Jesus. This was before most of your time, but in one particular scene in a movie that's it, played by Sir Lawrence Olivier, where he plays um, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus by night and then takes Jesus' his body from the, the uh, from the cross. But in between that, as he's watching Jesus being paraded, and he watched Jesus being uh, sentenced, and he's watching Jesus being crucified. There's a scene in the movie where Sir Lawrence Olivier playing the role. He he backs up against an olive tree, and it's as if the the overwhelming passage begins to bear on him like like a stone and he he goes back against the tree and he says surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of his peace was upon us and you see him he's Overwhelmed, he's overwhelmed with the emotion and, and, and he says, and by
1: his stripes we are healed. The crushing burden makes no sense whatsoever.
0: Unless it makes sense in the context of a freedom. And a wholeness, and a, well, a wellness, and a healing, and a reconciliation that God always intended to take place in the suffering servant, the Messiah.